So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 29 through 32, but focusing on just 31 and 32 this morning. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Father, as we put these words together and then try to make some sense or to at least bring to sort of a culmination this discussion that we've been having of the spiritual warfare that is going on for the hearts and souls of men and women, I, I pray that you would give wings to my words, that they would be your words according to how you want them put forward, that I wouldn't stray to either ditch on the left or the right, but I would stay absolutely true to your words and that we would find in these words um, a wonderful truth, but a compelling truth, a truth that when you came to preach to us, you preached both love and judgment. We will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past couple of weeks, if you've been here, we have indeed been talking about the reality of and the nature of spiritual warfare. And we've tried to view this from a heavenly perspective, if you will. That's the reason I have given it the name, the Cosmic Initiative. Because what I really want to see it is as it was established in heaven and comes to earth, almost a military-like campaign to take the truth of God and bring it to the earth. Towards that end, we have pretty much talked about two objectives that this initiative has. First of all, to destroy evil. We read that earlier in 1 John. I mean, that's exactly why Jesus came. To destroy the evil one, Satan, his demons, those with the mark of the beast, the death and sin, all of that. And, and not completely right away, but to set the groundwork for the second coming when all those things will absolutely be destroyed. Jesus, as we have said over and over again, did not come to make peace with evil. He came to destroy it, to disperse the darkness with light. But then the second um, objective in this um, initiative has been to seek and save the lost, to find those that the Father has set aside for him from the foundations of the world, to, um, to collect his bride, if you will, to purify them, and to, as we read in Psalm 68, to lead a train of captives back and present them to his Father free and purified and able to love and to worship him. Well, this morning we are going to add to that yet a third objective, which will come out as we go along. But um, I, I want to reestablish, I want to just reconfirm and to emphasize that we are talking about a spiritual battle here. I'm going to use words like warfare and weaponry and battles, but we're not talking about one that has any physical aspect to it whatsoever, be it emotional, be it political or social, no oppression, no physical war at all. This is a battle that exists and rages in the spiritual realm for the souls of men and women. 
We've sort of defined this coming of Jesus to the earth as a a shaft of light, almost like a laser beam that comes out of heaven and and, and pinpoints that little tiny country of Israel. And, and, And it's the glory of God. It's the Shekinah of God. We saw it on that evening when Christ was born and the Shekinah of God appeared to the the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And then we saw the heavenly host, the armies of God appear and for for all intents and purposes put Satan on notice that his days of unchallenged control of this world were over, that the kingdom of God is upon them. And, and, and that has given us a way to discuss, to discuss this, this cosmic initiative. Now, in the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been referring to what happens when that light, that truth comes to dispel the darkness or truth to dispel the falsehood. He, he's been talking about some of the countermeasures, the diabolical countermeasures that Satan will do. Satan has absolutely no power against the light and yet he has held this world in darkness for so many years, so many millennia before this happens and Jesus now Now, as the light is come to take it back, and Satan will fiercely defend what he feels is his. And so even though he cannot stop the light, well, he can try to convert it or to pervert it or to corrupt it or to mask it or to redirect people's attention so that they don't see the light. So we have seen two, actually, his two countermeasures. First of all, it is to create a false gospel, a gospel that is centered around moralism or autonomy autonomous piety or religiosity, clean the house up, sweep it out, get rid of the demons. And of course, Jesus has said that doesn't work because what happens is that that demon comes back with seven of his friends and the state of that person is worse in the long run than it was to begin with. I mean, unless the house is filled with Jesus... The demons are going to come right back in. So it's a false gospel. It's a gospel that cannot save anyone. And yet so much of the world follows that particular type of religion. Then the second um, aspect or the second uh, uh, kind of a countermeasure, we, we actually are in the middle of. I, I told you last week, I started this sermon, really the verses 29 through 32 go together. It was way too much material to cover in one week, so, you know, I split it. And, and, and that is to, instead of standing against the light, which you can't do, is to try to convince people that the light doesn't exist. <laughs> All we have to do is walk into a room and turn on the light switch and darkness is dispelled. But if Satan can convince you that the wall, that the, the light switch is just an ornament on the wall and doesn't do anything, then you're going to go elsewhere looking for the truth. And that's what happens when people begin to seek after signs. And so right in the middle of a discussion of sanctification through the means of grace, and I'm not going to take you all the way back to the 10th chapter and remind you through Mary and Martha and the parable of the Good Samaritan and the discussion of prayer, those means of grace that are designed for our sanctification, that in the middle of that, all of a sudden Luke introduces this discussion of spiritual warfare. And we talked about the reason for that is because the the battle is going to need obedient, disciplined, sanctified, battle-ready saints willing to stand against the gathering storm, willing to discern, able to discern the countermeasures of the enemy. And now it seems we're going right back to a discussion of the means of grace because after all, Jesus just said profound words, blessed rather are those who hear and keep the word of God. The focus, brothers and sisters, is back on the word of God. And you need to remember that because Jesus is telling us that signs don't do it, moralism doesn't do it, none of that is actually going to save you. You have revelation and it is right in front of you. The living word in those days, the written, revealed, illuminated word of God in ours. We need look no further than that for revelation. 
Now, with that said, and I know that's inadequate, but at least it kind of gives you an idea of where we are. Now, what I want to do is I want to go back and look at the first couple of verses here, 29, 30, and, and, and set the groundwork for the illustrations of the weaponry of the kingdom that Jesus is putting forward. Two wonderful, magnificent weapons. One, the truth. And two, something that we really haven't talked a lot about until now, and that is the unfathomable love of God and what that means and what it means if that love is refused. So with that said, let's go back to the 29th verse. I'm just going to very quickly run you through the first couple of verses and, and, and reestablish this discussion of signs. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Well, as Jesus is teaching, same exact um, conversation about the demons and Beelzebul and everything that's going on, the crowd begins to grow. And we talked about that as probably not any less hostile of a crowd than the one that was there in the beginning. It's just that the number of voices that are accusing him of doing miracles in the power of Beelzebul or demanding that he provide a sign for them are increasing. And so Jesus says at this time, this is an evil generation. This generation is an evil generation. Now, what we want to remember about that is that the word generation does not necessarily refer just to the people who are alive at the time of Jesus. But rather, it talks about people with the same mindset, the same belief, the same behavior. And in particular, the generation that he's talking about would include all people in all generations of time who are seeking for signs, who are ignoring the clear revelation of Scripture that God has given through His prophets, the law and the prophets, and now through His Son, Jesus Christ. Ignoring that, looking past that, and demanding signs before they will believe in Jesus. So potentially that means that even today... If you're seeking after signs and ignoring or as saying to God, your signs are not enough, your revelation in the, in the word is not enough, I need something more, then potentially Jesus is talking about you and he uses the word evil, which is a strong word, which refers to Satan and his, and his angels and the fallenness, the wickedness, the deprivation literally of righteousness. And so, therefore, those are strong words, so we want to make sure why Jesus would say that. And again, once again, we're going to talk about it a little bit later on. The people he's talking to is really an amazing statement because these are the ones who are the covenantal people of God, or at least think they are at the time. Well, he says that the reason that they are evil is because they're seeking for a sign. Now, when we talk about a sign in this context... A sign is simply an indicator. It's just simply something that points to something else outside of itself. And so when Jesus talks about signs, or when the gospel talks about signs, they talk about the mighty works, the miracles that Jesus works. In fact, John uses this word almost exclusively. And what that means is that the signs, the miracles, are not the reason that Jesus came. They're not to be um, separated out in and of themselves. They're pointers, they're signs, and they point to the divinity of Christ and the authority of Christ and the validity of his message. They are to authenticate what he came to say, the very word of God. And so the way the people are using that is they're demanding a greater sign out of Jesus. It's not like he hasn't given them plenty of signs already. In fact, he just cast out a demon just in front of a, a large number of these people. But they want to see a mountain move. They, they want to see something cosmic. And, and, and those are not signs of belief. Rather, those are signs of unbelief, as we saw last week. So Jesus says, no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. And, and you know, we kind of question that. Why is Jesus not willing to give them a sign? And I gave you four principles that are going to apply also this morning, and they're quite important. First of all, God is under absolutely no obligation to give you a sign at all. I mean, you can demand of him all day long, hey, give me a sign and I'll believe in you, and he is under absolutely no obligation to do that. Secondly, 
He does not reward unbelief with a sign. I mean, if you say, I'll believe in you if you give me a sign, that's rewarding your unbelief, and God doesn't do that. And thirdly, he will not be told how to reveal himself. He has revealed himself through his word. He has revealed himself through the prophets and the law and through Jesus, the radiance of his glory. And he is under absolutely no obligation and will not be told by you, that's all well and good, but give me a sign that I demand. And fourthly, even if he did, it wouldn't make any difference. You still wouldn't believe in him anyway because no one comes to saving faith through a sign. And of course, Judas Iscariot is the great example of that. And so Jesus says there will be absolutely no sign except for the sign of Jonah. Now I want to slow down a bit because the sign of Jonah is very important for today. And I want to repeat a little bit of what I brought out last week just so it's fresh in our minds. We don't need to go into the story of Jonah. Most of us are very aware of who Jonah was. He was a prophet, and God came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it. In other words, preach hellfire and damnation. Preach that um, that city is going to be overthrown. Well, Jonah couldn't stand the Ninevites uh, because that's the largest city in the Assyrian Empire. And these were the beasts of the world in those days. Uh, I mean, they were the most wicked, bloodthirsty, just the lowest level of humanity as far as the Jews were concerned. So it would be nothing that would make Jonah happier than for God to bring his wrath down upon the Ninevites and destroy the city. So he runs in the opposite direction, trying to go to Tarshish, the end of the world. And we know that God stopped him with a mighty storm. And the judgment of Jonah was to throw him into the water. That should have been the end of it. But it was the redemption of God that sent the big fish or whale or whale shark or whatever it was to swallow him up. That was his salvation. For three days, he is in that fish. And then he's deposited on the shore and given a second chance. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Really, a truly extraordinary Now, what was the sign of Jonah? Was it, well, being in the fish for three days obviously is a correlation, very symbolic as far as the resurrection of Christ, and we are going to see that it is indeed a sign also. But the real sign of Jonah was the preaching that he did. Jonah went to Nineveh, and God Uh, called him to preach judgment upon them, that in just 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown. And so he came preaching doom. And so part of the sign of Jonah is the preaching of the reality of God's wrath at sinfulness and the ultimate condemnation that comes from breaking his commandments. But you see, the sign of Jonah wasn't only a sign of judgment. That's not all that it was. Because Jonah himself was a sign of redemption. God had redeemed him from the sea. He had redeemed him from death in the water by having him swallowed by a great fish. And so uh, Jonah's redemption, and I know that we don't normally think about it this way, but Jonah's redemption was also the Ninevites' redemption. Because Jonah is the one that God sent to preach judgment to the Ninevites. But wait a minute, why did God do that? Why was it necessary that he gave them 40 days to repent, which is exactly what they did? So obviously there was something more there. There was redemption that was wrapped up in the message of judgment that Jonah brought to the Ninevites. God had a plan. He had a purpose. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. So there was redemption that was wrapped up in the preaching of judgment. Now Jesus says, just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man is assigned to this generation. Remembering what is meant by this generation, everyone who is looking past and ignoring or belittling or watering down the word of God and asking for more revelation or cooking it up on their own. The Son son of Man is assigned to that generation generation. So Jesus came preaching judgment. Now is the judgment of this world, he says, for the um, ruler of this world will be cast out. 
But there's an important difference between the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of Jonah. You see, Jonah came preaching judgment, hellfire and brimstone, condemnation and doom. And because of that preaching of judgment, the people believed God and they repented in sackcloth and ashes and they turned to God. And because of that, God had pity on them, compassion on them, and at least for the time being, excuse me, forgave them of their atrocities. Jesus did it in reverse order. Jesus came preaching redemption. Jesus came preaching love, (laughs) something completely different. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was the the, the first, the, the, the foot forward that Jesus always preached, the love of the Father and the redemption that he had come. Now, he never belittled, he never backed away from the preaching of judgment before he, because he just said, if by the finger of God I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I have come because I'm the stronger one to plunder the house of the strong man and to set the captives free and to take away the things that he thinks are his, which of course are the souls of people. And so Jesus came, yes, absolutely, preaching both love and judgment. But here's here's what I want to show you, brothers and sisters. The way that Jesus is preaching love first, the love of God, putting the love of God for even people like the Ninevites forward is such a profound statement of judgment. Because the greatest judgment that can come upon any human being in this world is to refuse or reject the love of God. And when Jesus comes and he puts the love of God right before you and he teaches that gospel and he tells you that God loves you and he has a plan that he is going to make it possible for you to stand in his presence by believing in his son, you throw that back in his face. And that's the greatest blasphemy, as we will see later, that you can do. So Jesus indeed came preaching love, but at the same time, he's preaching repentance. He's preaching that repentance is necessary. Mark, first chapter, says repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Jesus also established when he came one of the weapons that his spiritual warfare brought. And that's that lightning bolt, that shaft of light that came in, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Logos who became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the truth of God. And he brought that truth and he spoke it and he shared it with his disciples. Later on, the Holy Spirit brought it back to their remembrance and they wrote it down. We read it and he illuminates us. The New Testament, the Old Testament, these are the revealed word of God. And this is what Jesus has to say about those words. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I excuse me, and have spoken, will judge him on the last day. This entire section of Luke, brothers and sisters, do not miss this, has taken us back to the importance of the divinely inspired, revealed, infallible, uh, 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 um, um, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word of God. It puts the focus on that means of grace because that is how we come to know God and that is how we are sanctified in God. And towards that end now, Jesus is going to give us two illustrations. Two illustrations of judgment. But underneath the judgment, we we recognize the motivation behind the entire enterprise to begin with. First, the queen of the south. And then the men of Nineveh again. So let's look at those two verses. The queen of the south, verse 31. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, most of the people listening to Jesus at this time were very well aware of this story of the Queen of the South. She's uh, uh, registered in 1 Kings and again in 2 Chronicles. Um, we're going to look at 1 Kings uh, and, and, and learn a little bit more about it because we need to, um, to, to brush up on what that particular trip was all about. Uh, obviously, the queen of the south is so this queen of Sheba. So, from the first verse of the 10th chapter in 1 Kings, this is what we read. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Now, notice and keep in mind as we go through this that Solomon's real claim to fame was not just wisdom and wealth. It was wisdom in the name of the Lord. And we know that the name of the Lord refers to his essence, his wholeness, his completeness. So you can't separate Solomon's wisdom from the wisdom of God or the word of God because that's where his great wisdom came from, God supplying that wisdom. Now, Sheba was a country on the very southwestern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Okay, it's way down south, modern-day Yemen, if you want to look it up. And, and it was compared to the rest of Saudi, what is now Saudi Arabia, compared to the rest of it, it was quite fertile, actually. And it was irrigated, very similar to the way Egypt was, so they could produce crops. But that's not where the wealth of Sheba came from. The wealth came from trade. They were situated right there at the, at the end of that. They, they have a clear shot to India, clear shot to Africa and the Middle East. And so they brought trade from all those places together. And then, of course, the caravan routes came directly to them. And so it was quite a prosperous country. But what I want to point out is that it was over 1,200 miles away from Jerusalem. 1,200 miles of torturous deserts. And not 1,200 miles, it says a crow flies. And, and there's mountains and deserts and all kinds of challenges that would have to be overcome. And yet, so desirous was this woman of knowing the truth of God, having heard about Solomon, she packed up a major uh, caravan herself and off she goes. Now, she might have gotten on a boat and floated up, but I don't think so. Because we read that she brought 120 talents of gold with her. You know, you know how much gold that is? Anybody have an idea? We're not exactly sure what a talent is, but it's about 9,000 pounds of pure gold that she brought with her. Now, I'm told that in order for a group of camels to be able to transport almost 10,000 pounds of gold, you're going to need 25 to 30 camels. Now, she might have put those on a boat with all that gold, but I doubt it. So what I'm saying is that more than likely she covered that 1,200 miles of torturous terrain with camels by foot. Now, a camel can go about 20 miles in a day in perfect situations. These are not perfect situations by any means. So more than likely, this trip that she took was four to six months before she would get at a great risk of her own life. Now here, I want to make this point. It's kind of a vital point to what Jesus is doing, so I'm just kind of hammering it in. Not only was this an arduous trip, not only was this a trip of great hardship, not only did she take an amazing amount of wealth with her, but she put her life at risk. The, the chances of actually making this trip in those days, well, the chances against it were very high. And yet, so important was it for her to be able to hear the wisdom of God. She was willing to do that. And there's a whole bunch of people who will not even come to church on a day that it rains. And I just want you to think about that because that is the condemnation that is going to come against this generation at the judgment, which is exactly what Jesus says next. Well, anyway, when she finally gets to Jerusalem, 
we are told that she was filled with hard questions. Now, hard questions probably mean questions about theology, philosophy, about God, the nature of God. These are things that had been burning on the inside of her that she really wanted to know what the truth about it was. So she gets there and she starts firing these questions away at Solomon. And we are told that Solomon brilliantly answered each and every one of them. So that when it was all done, when, when all was said and done, and she had exhausted herself by asking all those questions, we read one of my favorite verses, there was no more breath in her. So in other words, Solomon took her breath away because of the power of his wisdom, his wisdom in the things of God. And when she recovered, that's when she sang that song, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This woman was blown away. She was blown away because she came from a land of spiritual darkness. A land where idols were worshipped. She had never experienced in her life the wisdom of God. She had never sat before a man of God who spoke the words of God. And she had never dreamed that this God that the rest of the world feared, that the rest of the world thought was simply angry and demanding sacrifices so they made little tiny idols so that they could control God, that the rest of the world had no understanding that God was a God of love. And God had poured his love out upon a people through this person, this amazing wisdom of Solomon. And so therefore, we see how she she understands for the first time the beauty and the love that is available in the true God as he is revealed in Scripture. So Jesus goes on to say that this woman... This woman who goes home, by the way, and uh, uh, apparently goes home with a full understanding that Solomon's God is God and a belief in that God, leaving everything behind her. Nothing else matters. She gave everything to Solomon because what she had received in return, which is just a glimpse of God, was all that she actually needed. Jesus says that this woman, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Obviously, we're talking about judgment. And we're not talking about any judgment. We're talking about the judgment. So in other words, the picture that Jesus is painting very vaguely here is that of the great white throne. And the men of this generation, remembering what generation means, anyone who is ignoring the love and the word of God, that the men of these generations will be on trial. And that word, rise up, even though it can be used of the resurrection, that's not what it refers to here. Imagine a courtroom scene. In the old days, it would have happened in the gates of the city. In our days, it happens in a courtroom. And what happens is that there's a prosecuting attorney, and that prosecuting attorney is going to call witnesses against the defendant to condemn that defendant. And when the witness is called upon, they rise up to bear testimony against the defendant that will condemn them. And Jesus says that the testimony of this woman, this pagan from Sheba, this woman outside of the covenant, she will rise up at the judgment time and condemn those who have ignored and rejected the word of God. Why? Jesus goes on to say, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came from Sheba, 1,200 miles. That's the reason I wanted to drive that in. It was so important to her. She had a hunger and a thirst for the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, this is something that bothers me. It bothers me deeply. It bothers me about this culture that we live in, and it bothers me actually to a degree about this church. And that is that I I see a malaise. I I see an indolence as far as the hunger and thirst for the Word of God is concerned. 
And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately, before I became a pastor, I got to see some other places on this planet where that's not true. I mean, if I go 45 minutes, I start losing people. Your light bulbs start going off, right? If I go over 45 minutes. Well, I've been in many cultures where after an hour, two hours, three hours, multiple pastors, the people are clamoring for more. I've seen them walk for days and go without food, sleep in the cold and on floors just so they can hear the Word of God. I've seen them at 2 o'clock in the morning having to get up the next day to go out into the fields clamoring for another sermon because they are so hungry for the Word of God. I fear sometimes, brothers and sisters, that coming from a country like this, with the Word of God right in front of us, a Christian, Judeo-Christian background, really actually written by Reformed Puritan Christians in the colonial periods, I fear that this woman will rise up against us and condemn us at the judgment because we don't have that hunger for the Word of God. We don't have that thirst to be able to hear the wisdom of God. Jesus goes on to say that something greater than Solomon is here. Notice the behold, first of all. Pay attention to this. Look at this. Don't miss it. Something greater than Solomon is here. See, that's the big problem that they face. That's the big problem we face. Notice that Jesus doesn't say someone greater than Solomon. Notice that he says something greater than Solomon. And, and I think that what he means by that is he's not just talking about himself, but he is, of course, the preeminent one in what he's talking about. But I think he's talking about the cosmic initiative. I think he's talking about the culmination of God's redemptive plan, the coming of the kingdom of God, the establishment of the church and going into the gospel age. This is all wrapped up together. And he says something greater than Solomon, something wiser, a kingdom that is better, a king that is better, a a wisdom that is better, and a love that is beyond anything that you can fathom. It all stands right in front of you, and you're asking for a sign and accusing him of being a demon. That's the unforgivable sin, almost. If that goes to the end of their life, there will be no forgiveness for that. Jesus goes on and gives us a second example, going back to the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is an extraordinary statement, brothers and sisters, when you consider Jonah's audience and Jesus' audience. Jonah is preaching to pagans. He is preaching to bloodthirsty barbarians who 35 years later will attack and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, dispersing those northern tribes. They would never, ever again be brought together. They are the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. And yet he goes and he preaches to them. God sends him and there is both judgment and redemption in his message. It's amazing that these men will stand up and condemn the men Jesus is talking to. The religious ones, the righteous ones, the covenantal people of God, the ones who have the word of God, the law and the prophets and meditate on it constantly, the ones who have the temple and make the sacrifices and tithe their right down to their 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 cumin and dill. I mean, right down to the to the to the herbs in their garden. And yet these men will rise up against the men of this generation and condemn them. How is that possible? How is it possible that the men of Nineveh, wicked, evil, bloodthirsty men, will rise up against some of the most squeaky clean people on the face of the planet unless your righteousness outshines the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. And these pagans are going to condemn them. Why? Because they proved that if you listen to the word of God, 
no matter how deep your sinfulness, no matter how wrapped in sin you are, no matter what you have done in your past life, if you listen to the word of God and it leads you to repentance and belief in his son, Jesus Christ, then you are cleansed. These men will rise up at the judgment and point the finger at those who have looked past the word of God and they will say, you have no excuse because redemption is possible. Repentance is possible. And we are here to show you that. Yes, they will condemn this generation, those who have seen the glory of God and looked right past it. Something greater And Jonah is here. Something far greater. Jonah was a man. And he went and he preached judgment and doom. And they repented. Jesus is the son of God. He came working miracles. And showing who he was through his signs. And preaching the love of God. And yet so many people reject him. When you stand before the throne of God. You will have no excuse. Because the revelation of God has been put right in front of you. Well, let me see if I can back up from this and bring some kind of sense to it all. Because I want to introduce the, go back to the cosmic uh, uh, initiative if I can. Now, so far, as I said over and over again, I'm not going to go into it, don't worry, but we have seen two objectives. We have seen that God sent his son, and we, we see that. Jesus said, the Father has sent me, and now I'm sending you. So we know that he was the apostle, capital A, sent one from heaven. The Father sent the Son, and he sent him with a threefold objective. First, to destroy evil. We've talked about that. To destroy and plunder the house of the strong man. Second, to, to set the captives free. To find his bride amongst the, the, the filth of the sewer and to purify her and, and lead her back and introduce her and place her before his father. Those are the great objectives. But there was another one. There was another objective that is, 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 is part of this. And, and I would ask you, how, in fact, is Jesus going to set the captives free? In other words, we know that there's two objectives, destroy evil and set the captives free. Well, how is he going to go about that? Because guess what? The captives are just as evil as their ruler when Jesus comes. So... Something must happen. There must be a third objective, if you will. And and in order to describe that, I want to go back to the um, story of Jonah for just a moment. And, And I mentioned this earlier, but I want to ask it. We've talked about the weaponry of the enemy. And we've talked about the weaponry of the kingdom. Truth, the light, Jesus, the logos, the word is here. But there's something that happened at the at the ministry of Jesus that we haven't touched on. Now, go back to Nineveh and ask yourself, why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? What was the purpose? What was the motivation that God would send Jonah to Nineveh? Jonah hated the Ninevites and he tried to go in the other direction. God stopped him and redeemed him and saved him and led him once again to the Ninevites. Why would he do that? If all God is about is judgment and anger and wrath, that he just would have brought his judgment upon those people without sending Jonah. He didn't need Jonah to be able to destroy the Ninevites. Why did he send Jonah? He sent Jonah because in the fourth chapter he says he has pity on these people who don't know their left hand from their right. They are spiritually ignorant. I have compassion on them. Could it possibly be? Is there any chance in the world that God could love the Ninevites and send Jonah to preach judgment because he loved them so that they would not be judged and destroyed. And you say, absolutely not. Forget it. Are you kidding me? These guys are beasts. They're, they're, they're the scum of the earth. 
God would never send Jonah, a prophet, to, 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 to save people who hated him, who spit on him, who worshipped other gods. Have you figured it out yet? Do you see it? You're the Ninevites, folks. I'm the Ninevites. God sent his son to us when we hated him. When we were lost in our sins. When we had nothing to do with him. God sent his son when we didn't know him. When we, we, we were totally looking for our own salvation. God sent his son to a people who didn't know anything about him. He did it not out of judgment. He did it out of love. However, the greatest judgment that will ever come upon any of us is if we actually reject the love of God. Do you realize what that third, that third objective was? Now, we have to go back, and we take this for granted because we are so used to the Trinity and the talk of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, before Jesus came, that was virtually an unknown. And, and one of the reasons that they hated Jesus so much is because he claimed to be the very Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh. And they called that blasphemy because they believed in a monolithic singular God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, and Jesus came claiming to be the Son of God. When Jesus came to this earth, he revealed to us the nature of God. There is a Father. There is a Son. And there is a Holy Spirit. And each one of them has a crucial part to do in the redemption plan that God has, has brought together. He has sent His Son to be the Redeemer. But Jesus keeps talking about something that the world was completely oblivious to. See, if you go back into the Old Testament, the one thing you will not find is constant reference to God as Father. Oh, very few references, a couple of addresses, usually from the great saints like Abraham or Moses or David or Isaiah, but the most people did not see God as a loving Father. They had no conception of that. That is something that Jesus brought. He's the one that introduced the Son, and He's the one that introduced the fact that we have a loving Heavenly Father, who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. It is an inexplicable love. It is a fathomless love. There is no end to it. It's an infinite love. And He loves us like He loves His Son. And He wants to pour that love upon us even as He poured it upon His Son. He wants us to recognize that He is our Father just as He was the Father of His Son, Jesus Christ. We have a Heavenly Father. And the Lord God says to Jesus, you go down and tell them that they have a father. Their father on earth might have been a, 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 a despicable animal, but they have a heavenly father who loves them, who has known them before the foundations of the world and wants them to have relationship with him, to come into his presence. And so therefore, this cosmic initiative has three primary foci or focuses, if you will, to destroy evil absolutely, to set the captives free, but to do that by showing the greatest imaginable love. When God sent his own son and he sent him to take on the attributes of a human being, to be born into a sinful world, to undergo the mockery and the rejection of humanity, to hang on a cross with our sins upon him, to suffer the wrath of God on those sins. There is no greater expression of love that any human being could ever imagine than that. When Jesus came, he came to express to us that we have a father who loves us. Now, that's all great. It's all well and good, brothers and sisters. And these days, there are whole ministries that do nothing but focus on that love of God. And I don't want to take anything away from it. But to talk about a love that great, the most horrible sin that you can commit, the most terrible insult that you can give God, the most blasphemous thing that you can do, 
the unforgivable sin is to refuse the love of God. Jesus came preaching to you a loving father. Don't throw that back in his face. God sent his son to die for you because he loves you. We might as well, we could even say God so loved the world. We could say the father so loved the world because that's Jesus talking, the son, about his father. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is the simplicity of the gospel. You have two choices. You have two paths that you can take. Either you can stand on your own. You can fall for the tricks of Satan. You can fall under his diabolical countermeasures. And you can follow right behind Satan where he's headed. And Revelation tells us that's the lake of fire. There's nothing down that road but condemnation. Or you can be one of the captives that the Son of God will lead back to heaven. Purify, cleanse, present to his Father. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. What a celebration that will be. As those that the Lord has brought to himself, when every single sheep is in the fold, and Jesus leads us as a train of captives back to his Father and presents us as his bride, prepared for an eternity of worshiping. What a glorious and wonderful day that will be. So I leave you with... Simple, straightforward words of Jesus. However, no way to plumb their depths. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, so much wrapped up in this. So many avenues that we could go down. But I thank you for something that I cannot fully understand. I know enough about it to thank you for it. I can read about it and I can trust in it, but I can't fathom it. And that's the degree to which you love me. The degree to which you love those you have called to yourself that are in this room or that are listening on the internet, those who might listen years from now. Lord, I cannot fathom your love. I cannot comprehend it but I recognize it that it's beyond anything that we as human beings can manufacture. I also recognize that the only way that I can experience your love is through Christ. And the only way that I can return that love to you is through Christ. So I close this by thanking you for Christ and for his sacrifice on our behalf and for the great love that put that entire thing in motion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.